Hi, Tony Silva. Charles Wiz. And this is episode 109, Two Teachers Talking. Uh, Charles and I get together each month, talk about teaching English in Japan. Um, all the challenges, frustrations, joys to be found therein. And uh, today, we again uh, will be talking about study abroad. But uh, this time, we'll be focusing on the downside or the potential pitfalls and how to avoid or cope with them. But um, it's, as we record, it's uh, nearing the end of March, not the Ides. The Ides have passed. Um, And that also means the beginning of a new school year. So y'all ready, Charles? Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I'm ever ready for it. It, it, You know, after doing this for I don't know how many years, it's always surprising to me how far away from being where I want to be I am at this point. But yeah, I think pretty much good enough to go. I've thought about a few things, going to be reworking some things, implementing some new ideas. How about yourself? I'm so far away from being anything like ready. And it's only a, a couple of weeks and things, but uh, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a very hard couple of weeks. It's going to be a pretty hard year. Because? Um, one of the schools where I teach, I teach there twice a week and they have implemented a new curriculum syllabus. Um, New textbooks, coordination, online stuff, all kinds of things to learn, and then somehow take all those things that I have to learn in the next 10 days and uh, implement them perfectly into my teaching. So, Well, what kind of online thing? Uh, I can't tell you. I haven't looked at it yet, but there's... Um, you're wondering why you're not anywhere here to be ready exactly i'm not ready i'm not ready an online workbook there's an online workbook and there's coordination between the reading writing component and the speaking listening component um i guess is not my guess i know that there are common exams toward the end and exactly how do you balance teaching to the test because they're going to look at of course it's like oh so-and-so's students scored an average of 89, but his, this two guys, well, that's because he was, he was teaching things like note-taking or <laughs> critical thinking or, or something else, which is not on the test. So mm. anyway, so you I've got to somehow you sort that all out. You don't sound well, you know how the love I have for coordinated programs because, you know, they're so helpful and so effective. Well, actually, <laughs> you know, Tony, my experience with you is quite the opposite. Hmm. working with you in a coordinated program was quite different. So, Well, that was different. different. <laughs> Everything was different about that. Okay, now, now go ahead and tell. So overall, how many different kinds of changes? You've got online stuff. You've got a new textbook. You've got coordination two between... Two new textbooks. Coordination mm. between classes. Mm-hmm. Um, um, centralized testing, basically. Mm-hmm. And has any of this been piloted yet? Theoretically. Uh, a couple of the full-time teachers piloted it the previous year, and they were honest enough in the in the meeting when it was like, "Well, you know, we had some real problems <laughs> solved by uh, having the teachers cover only three chapters per semester." And what was the expectation? I don't know. I think there's like 15 or 20 chapters in the book. I don't know. And let me ask another question, which I I just love doing this. This is. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Is that. I just just love to bleed. Just cut me and I bleed. Yeah. It's not you. It's not you. I know, but it hurts. I'm suffering. Right. I'm dying. I'm dying here, right? (laughs) I'm dying. I'm dying here. I'm dying here. I'm bleeding all over the mic. Um. Which movie was that? I'm dying here. Was that Scarface? No, 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 no. That's um, Dog Day Afternoon, Dustin, isn't it? It's Dustin Hoffman. Is it Dustin it? Hoffman? It's not um, Al I'm dying here. I'm dying. I can. Okay. Uh, <laughs> is there any baseline data so that they can compare whether or not the curriculum changes make a difference? Oh, 
One, <laughs> two, three. Come on, man. Come four. on, man. No, no, oh, no. You know, I, you know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bleeding. I'm dying here, man. Come on. Uh, yeah, we're going through all these curriculum. Changes. I said it's going to be a hard year. Christ. <clears throat> and my problem always with these things is that I ask these questions, and suddenly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, suddenly I'm the like the the most unpopular person in the room. I can imagine. Yeah, just to say, look, you know, it's before we implement the program, let's just get some baseline data and then implement the program and see whether or not the change is worth it. Because then you can tell whether to go backwards, right? You know, whether to toss something. And uh, okay, yeah. So you have got that coming up. What about your other schools? That's one school, right? Everything else is somewhat static. One of them has, I don't know, there must be some kind of shakeup in the administration where, um, they decided this like, well, we need to tighten this up. So suddenly all kinds of things are mandatory. So the teachers this year, teachers meeting at the beginning of the year is, year is mandatory. This is like you, in terms of student tests and student grading materials, you must keep them for a minimum of five years and like that. But in terms of actually what that, means down at in the classroom probably negligible it's just like an attitude they want you to um, keep student records for papers and things for five years mm-hmm. yeah yeah you think that no, that's, that's going to lead to an increase in scanner use <laughs> yeah you know where i'm going to be in five years man <laughs> in communicado and you know where those and you know where those student records are going to be <laughs> You know, I don't think I've ever had to pull up a student record for more than a semester. Mm-hmm. Right? This is when students, for, for example, file some kind of complaint or inquiry mm. about the grade they got. Mm. But I've never yeah, had Yeah, it to... happens immediately or not at all. Right, right, right. After a year, two years. But it doesn't make sense because after four years, the student's already maximally graduated, right? Mm. Yeah. In most cases, it's fair. Yeah, most cases. Good point. Okay, <laughs> so that's a compromise number. Okay, and it's those ones that is like, oh, right. how about that class that you had? You know, talking to their lawyer. What about this English class that you failed back in two thousand nine? <laughs> so, other than that, <laughs> other than the positive, usual positive things that occur at the beginning of a semester, um, anything you're going to do differently? Any, did you no. figure out any new things to try or explore, mm. experiment with? Small things, small things, a little bit. Um, well, we want like also one of the schools is like shifted from 90 minutes to 100 minute classes. Mm. Um, so having little breaks in the middle and kind of like a little more self reflection, a little bit more uh, having the students, I can't think of a better word, but so I'll use it again reflect on what they did in class i mean just kind of think about what we did what they did what they learned why they did what they did etc etc kind of and and envelope the class okay a little bit more this is what we're going to do today we're going to do it and at the end of the class okay what did you learn kind of thing so a little bit i'm going to do a little bit more of that um i'm going to do a little bit more with um note taking note taking from in lectures and note-taking um, when reading, um, just because I think it's important, and I'm going to have to like fit that in with all this coordination and stuff, but I think it's worthwhile for the kids. So I'll do some of that. But um, overall, nothing big. Okay. How about you? Oh, let's see. Uh, I'm going to definitely focus more on note-taking and note-taking systems so that students can find a, a good way to do that. I've just been too frustrated with their lack of notes. The other thing I've been thinking about, and this is more just to to deal with lowering my blood pressure, hmm. is I'm going to go to contracts. Okay. I'm going to have very clear expectations, and you know these are the things that I expect from you, and by being in this class, you agree to these, and if you feel like you can't agree to these... <laughs> and you can't sign the contract, then you need to explore whether or not you can take another class. And, you know, minimal, just acceptable standards of behavior uh, is one thing. 
And the other thing, and this is just kind of coming about because I'm trying to work on some website development, learning how to do that in coding, is I'm going to recycle previous activities. So a good example of that is, let's say you have a presentation class and you have the students do a basic three-minute thing on their hometown. And then the next week they do, let's say, uh, their hobby. And usually I move in this very straight line. And so by the end of the semester, they're talking about a problem issue, um, you know, problem solution kind of presentation. And what I found out by working on this coding, for example, I went back and I did something that I had done a year ago. And I found it, wow, okay, I did it in like 25% of the time and I had better insight and I understood what was going on. And I was really able to clearly see what I've learned and also what I still needed work on. And that made me think that instead of moving just const you know, constantly in a straight line with students going to increasingly more difficult presentations, I'll, after, let's say, three or four weeks, I'll have them go back and redo their self-introduction or their hometown and so that they get a sense as to see how far they've improved and are able to compare. So that's something I'm going to do. That's nice. Um, checklists. I'm going to have checklists where they you know, list what, you know, a pre-class checklist, a during-class checklist, you know, did I take notes, you know, did I understand everything, did I ask questions? And then also at the beginning of every class, and I'm trying to figure out how to do this exactly so that I have access to the data, but they also have a piece of paper to say, okay, I feel, mo how motivated do I feel today? How much effort am I going to put in during the day? Because I want to be able to kind of track that also. So those kind of record keeping for them as well as for myself are things that I'm going to do. And uh, there's also, <laughs> and this is because of my wife complaining about me complaining about things, is I think I'm going to actually every class put up on the board, you know, with either magnets or something, stuff you should never say to me during class. <laughs> and I, you know, that's kind of like, I didn't do the homework because I was absent. You know, hmm. the kind of things that I think are just not acceptable to say any longer. And so I'm thinking of just putting more stuff on the board, putting more things around the class, um, cheat sheets, you know, teaching the students that they need to have cheat sheets in a good way that, you know, you need to mm -hmm. have your notes mm -hmm. present when you're doing an activity, you need to be able to refer because as I've been, again, doing this like web development stuff, you know, I have to go back and look at my notes and say, ah, this is the, the code that I use in this place and this is how it's used. So I think those are the main areas that I'm going to try to implement some new things and then just keep my fingers crossed that everything works. Good. But good. Sounds good. And, and then just the usual, you know, new curriculum here, new changes here. Yeah, thank you, you know, and uh, trying to resist being too negative and um, pessimistic about things. But it just stuff keeps coming down, you know, from a top-down way that, you know, it's just like, excuse me, when's the last time you were in a classroom? But I'm trying to resist that and go in with a positive attitude and do well. So, okay. Have we covered what we're doing new this year? I think so. All right. So now we're back to study abroad. Study abroad. And you want to talk about the downsides. Sure. And um, I'm not sure that there are too many downsides. <laughs> I got, that's, that's why I'm very curious to hear what you have to say. So. Yeah, and I had, um, I, it was, let's see, this is 2019, and this must have been about, I guess maybe it's almost 20 years ago. I had something about crisis and faith about uh, uh, study abroad, because, uh, again, I was in kind of the de facto coordinator of a study abroad program a long time ago, 25, 30 years and. Um, while I was seeing a lot of the benefits, I also saw a lot of the uh, hardship that the students were going through coming back and you know, some of the negative reactions among the other teachers and things. And I started to question whether or not me being this cheerleader for going abroad for study and things, it was really doing the students' service that I thought it was. Um, I've come around, it, it passed, but, uh, but there's, definite, there's definite downsides and there's definite things that, that I think kids need to be worried about. Um, 
<clears throat> not to get too negative, I don't want to get into some of the nightmare stories, but um, basic, right? So thinking about studying abroad, one of the big one of the big problems is the cost. It's really expensive. This is true, or that it's, is true. It's really expensive. That's a lot of money. Um, and uh, depending on which country you're going to, scholarships might be available, but they're few and far between. Most kids are not going to qualify for a, a scholarship. Um, you can kind of combine it with a working holiday in some countries. Uh, maybe start off like with a, a six-week gig or at a, at a language school. Uh, Get get your feet on the ground. Get get lay of the land. Get settled, and then, you know, look for a job. I had a student who just came back. She spent, um, who did exactly this. Uh, she spent a year in uh, the Toronto area, and started off in a, a language school for a few weeks, uh, three weeks, four weeks. You know, got an apartment, got got her feet on the ground, and. Uh, Worked, you know, working holiday in it for the rest of the year, mostly at restaurants, um, and uh, had had a fine experience, and uh, came back fluent in English, with a very interesting combination of Chinese Korean <laughs> accents on top of her Japanese accent, um, but overall positive experience for her and. Also, another awareness is like, okay, that she understands that she um, gained influency, but she also understands that had, since it was not academic study, it was her academic English is still wanting. And uh, I think she's going to audit one of my classes next year, uh, not for credit, but because uh, she's a year behind her, co her cohorts have um, moved on. So she's going to come back and do a, a class that um, maybe she didn't have a chance to take. I'm not sure. But certainly not with me. But um, the cost is a big one. Yeah, that's a fair point. Hmm. That's expensive. Uh, safety. And it's, it's easy to blow it out of proportion, but at the same time, you have to be aware of it. And not only safety, but like danger awareness. Um, because, yeah, Japan, Singapore, two of the safest countries in the world, let's assume. Um, so wherever the student goes, it's going to be more dangerous than it is here. And just an awareness of all the different kinds of dangers, right? And, you know, if you grow up in, you know, LA or Detroit, you, you have, you know, it's not instinctive because it's learned, but you develop a, a, a street smarts, a, sen a sense on the streets of a dangerous situation. And it, it's so cultural and it's so very different. So, like when you, we came to Japan, and um, we saw the guys wearing women's slippers and their, you know, hairs and curly permanence, it was a real effort to realize that these might be dangerous people. You know, people said, "Like, don't, don't look at them, don't laugh, don't, don't laugh at them. They're dangerous." Like, come on, <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, that that total awareness of um, safety and, and danger. Um, so that's something to be aware of, I think. Okay. It's very different when you come to Japan. And <laughs> I was trying to explain to somebody that I've seen people use their wallets to hold a seat at like a Starbucks. Uh-huh. <laughs> or, like, or like, you know, you're, you're going to school in the morning and your backpack is unzipped. Yeah, but I think that's the kind <laughs> of thing that people need to have more awareness of is not so much personal danger but property issues that your property is just not safe in the same way that it is in japan but you know, property but also and i'm thinking mostly of the women but not not exclusively the women but um you know especially if they're like involved in universities university parties and um the japanese tendency to avoid uh, any kind of conflict and to agree and agree and laugh and say, okay, ha, 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 ha. Um, and the dangers of, you know, date rape drugs and roofies and things and um, just the importance of being able to 
say no. You know, so it's something, you know, these, these are things I, I teach in my, my intercultural classes, but yeah, I think I have to teach them because I think it's a real part of life over there. This is um, something that I talk with students when they go over to the United States or when I know that we're or going over to, you know, outside of Japan is that, yeah, there's a different, you have to learn to say no. You have to say, okay, this is not okay. No, thank you. Uh, that's a big part of their experience. Um, one of my seminar students came back from Australia and she did her graduation thesis on saying no and what it would, hmm. and she did a whole set of experiments you know looking at you know getting students to say no under different circumstances and um, situations she said that was motivated by her getting into a situation when she was living with her room in a, in a shared house and having to say, no, I'm not going to do the extra work or no, I don't want to go to this party, for example. So I think that's a very good point you just made, that helping Japanese students learn to say no. And maybe sure. the negative is, or the downside is, I don't know how much training they get in that, how much prep they get in that. So In most cases, not much. Okay. Um, the other thing that, uh, people need to be aware of is the disruption of, to what you, what they might consider life at home, um, the disruption or changes because there will be changes. So a lot of the times you know, people are focused on what they're going to have to adapt to when they go to the foreign country. And I'll, I'll get. I want to talk a little at length with this later on, um, but also being aware that, yeah, there's going to be disruption at home. And when you come back, there's, you're going to need to adapt. Uh, there will be changes. And um, not only for the, the, the student himself, herself, but um, it's going to affect family and it's going to affect friendships uh, at on a lot of different levels and things. Um, and sometimes it can be yeah, kind of hard to deal with, I think. But again, I'll, I'm going to save that for later on. I don't know if I've had any students mention to me that they had family issues or issues with their friends. They've talked a little bit about returner, returnee shock, reverse mm -hmm. culture shock a little bit, right. especially right. academic reverse, well, how would I put it? Re Reverse culture academic shock, reverse academic culture shock. You know, when they come back and they're in an environment where the expectations of what the students are supposed to do in class and academically has dropped significantly. A number sure. of them have mentioned that. But uh, let you run with this one again, because overall, yeah. I think this is a, a topic closer to your heart than it is to mine. Yeah, I want I want to punt at that one a little more toward the end. Okay, because that that's a longer one. Okay. Yeah, for, yeah. What's right or wrong here, and what's right or wrong there? It's completely different things. Classroom behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So why don't you continue? And what okay. other things are you thinking of? Well, just basic adaptation, and it it can be very difficult. You know, you you, however well you're prepared, you think you are, or not, you know, drop you in another country, and um again a lot of it depends on the individual uh personality experience uh, and when you find yourself in in brisbane or london or new york or seattle vancouver um it's going to be really really different and people deal different with the adaptation and some people can do it easily some people not so easily easy. so that's always something to be considered, right? Mm -hmm. And realist, you know, um, preparation and realism. I don't, I don't know. Um, on the one hand, it's I want to say that the more you research, the more information you get, the more you prepare yourself, the better off you are. I'm not sure that's true for everybody. I think that's kind of the way that I that's would do it. That's the way I did. Um, approach coming to Japan. I don't know that it helped me a great deal. <laughs> um, but some people might be more comfortable just like, you know, jumping in, in the deep end and let, ha let come what may. 
I don't know. Um, but um, I haven't read anything about it this past year, but just if, not so long ago, Paris Syndrome. You know what I'm Mm-mm. referring to? No. It was about, you know, again, this is, I'm just may not Paris be accurate. Paris Syndrome? Pa- Paris Syndrome. It's like maybe five years ago. It was a thing that year that uh, the Japanese tourists had this over-romanticized vision of what Paris was like. And they went to Paris on vacation, and when confronted with the reality, which conflicted considerably with their romantic expectations, um, had actually a, quite a severe reaction. They manifested this physical illness. They went to doctors, and the doctors, I, I assume, sedated them, put them on a plane back to Japan. Because the reality of Paris versus the romantic expectation was, in, it was it were so disparate that the the travelers couldn't handle it. You've got to be kidding me. Do I sound like I'm kidding? Yeah, you do. <laughs> no, no, no. This is a thing. Look it up. Paris syndrome. Um, that's exactly what I'm doing. That's why you can hear. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, so I just, I, I. I just typed in Paris Syndrome, and here's what comes up. Paris Syndrome, Paris Syndrome Reddit, Paris Syndrome Hotline. I got to go see what that is. Hold on. Paris Syndrome Hotline. Wikipedia, Paris Syndrome is a condition exhibited by some individuals when visiting or going on vacation to Paris as a result of extreme shock described from their discovery. Ah, there's Jerusalem Syndrome, Stendhal Syndrome, Mean World Syndrome. Ah, and here's something from, hold on, Paris Syndrome, Culture Shock, SBS News. I have no idea what SBS News is, but the headline says, Paris Syndrome, Culture Shock Sickness Sends Japanese Tourists Packing. There you go. Paris Syndrome is a psychological condition experienced almost exclusively by Japanese tourists who are disappointed when the City of Lights does not live up to their romantic expectations. I don't know whether to laugh or cry. You know? I do know. (laughs) Um, It seems that they're single women. Wait, the Japanese embassy reports many victims of Paris syndrome are single women traveling looking for a romantic experience. So I have no idea if this is um, what the SBS site is and whether or not. But it's a thing. Okay. All right. I didn't make it so, up. <laughs> well, obviously, you didn't make it up. Either that or you have definitely um, put a lot of things in. Oh, wait. BBC News, Europe. Paris syndrome strikes Japanese. December 20, 2006. Huh. I tend to like feel BBC's reasonable. But what is, it that, what is it that shocks them? Oh, an encounter with a rude taxi driver or a Parisian waiter. Okay, well, look, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not prepared for a French waiter, then you haven't done your homework. Mm. Oh, okay. Um, who shouts at customers who cannot speak fluent French? Um, okay. And it says, in 2006, according to the BBC, this year alone, the Japanese embassy in Paris has had to repatriate four people with a doctor or nurse on board the plane to help them get over the shock. Wow. It was first identified 20 years ago by a Japanese psychiatrist, uh, Hiroaki Ota. And on average, up to... I'm sorry. On average, up to 12 Japanese tourists a year fall victim to it. So, yeah, fair enough. And the Japanese so, yeah, so there, embassy... I mean, that's a, a severe example of that. But we all do that. I mean, it's like we, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I didn't have to see a doctor. But, yeah, when I came to Japan, I had a one, you know, vision, a set of expectations. And a lot of those were not met. <laughs> the reality was quite different from what I was expecting. Well, okay, let, let me... But you deal with that right. ordinarily. Well, the, the thing is, is that I, 
I, I don't know how to actually process this right now. I, I'm going both <laughs> ways, which is that some people really are overly sensitive. But I think if you've created such a high level idealized creation of something, then you haven't been reading carefully. You haven't been, you know, you're getting all your information from Hollywood movies, for lack of a better term. But you deal with it. And everybody has it. I mean, I remember coming to Japan. And you're right, you know, things are very different. I remember seeing McDonald's and uh, a Kentucky Fried Chicken next to a, a temple. <laughs> that was really weird. Huh. I didn't know that there was such a thing called Paris Syndrome. Huh. So have you ever had any students report that? No. Um, because... The students that I, most of the students that I know that go abroad are, have been taught by me. So they're better prepared. Sorry. I sound cocky there, but well, I wonder it's if, true. I wonder if it's the opposite. Like when they go to America and they find out that it's not as violent as it's been portrayed. Um, I get, I get some of that and that's, that's fine. I, I, I teach them be ready for anything and so of course everything doesn't happen so oh you said this was just i didn't say it was going to happen i said it might and you're lucky it didn't but i've had i've had a student who um she wasn't in my intercultural class she was like a regular conversation class i didn't know she was going abroad um her backpack was picked on her first day in the united states hmm. so you know it's a college town they're used to foreign students unawares. Beginning of the semester, you're walking around with a target on your back. Steal my stuff. Yeah. Well, we've been to New Zealand a couple of times, and every time, two times out of, I think, three or four times that we've been to New Zealand, we've um, had property theft. Really? Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've had, I, my my couple of times, a few times in Europe, I've been um, warned and chastised by my ex European experienced wife to be much more careful with my personal belongings. And I, and I, I you know, I kind of just laughed it off. She says, "No, no, 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 I'm serious. Hmm. You got to be careful. Ah, no one's going to take my wallet." <laughs> well, you're not you're not running around with your wallet in your back pocket, are you? Of course. No, you do. Oh, yeah, you it's see, in my back pocket. See, once I leave Japan, my, my wallet's always in a bag or in my front pocket or something. I never keep my wallet in my back pocket anymore outside of Japan. Have you ever had your wallet ripped off when you're in Europe? No, no. Okay. All right, so you're, there are some negative things. Sometimes I'm not done. <laughs> <laughs> I got a list. I want to go back to Paris syndrome. I just oh, I'm fascinated okay. by this. But no, that's okay. Okay, continue with your list. I, I think okay. I would be otherwise so, uh, the podcast will turn into a discussion of Paris syndrome. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe that's a discussion for another day. We can go in depth why that manifests. Yeah, that yeah. Why I do have some I mean, I think I could There's all kinds of reasons. So we can we can well, or what it indicates about the way people idealize and not are incapable or not capable or not in a situation to adapt and you know the cognitive dissonance right all kinds of stuff okay yeah, anyway it's, it's fascinating okay it is it is okay. i love it i love it okay go ahead choosing the wrong school or the wrong location mm, okay it's so easy to do yes right? yes um yes. and because there's no way to know it's like it's like students going to like let's sorry we're both in the united states let's choose the united states um versus like a small town in oregon San Diego, a school in Texas. Okay, good. Because uh, I was Ohio. about to say, why are you why are you picking on the West Coast again? You know, no, 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 no. <laughs> Just because I'm, I'm working left to right, um, and they're all so different. And you know, urban, rural, different subcultures, languages. It's the United States is such a big place, and then you, then you throw in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, England, um, and some of the other English speaking countries. It's like um, which of those choices matches best with the individual and what they want? A lot of times they're not really able to like consider what it is that really they're looking for, what they want. And even if you choose the right general location, what about, okay, if you're going to study, 
then you got the, the, the different schools in that area and which one is going to be the best match for you. Getting the right combination is a really, really, really tough thing to do. Um, and it's, I think it's very easy to get the wrong combination to make your, it can go very, very wrong. And I think you're primarily talking about when a student go individually chooses to study abroad rather than as part of a school program. Yeah. Right. Because then there's information from. You're limited to choices, right? right. And you're steered into it and and there's a built-in support network. Yeah. I think part of the biggest issue I think for some of my students I've known who've gone to America is when, you know, they've actually said to me, what's the weather like in America? There you go. And you have to stop and explain to them, you're not getting. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're just, you're not is, understanding yes. how, how big this country is. And, but mm. there's something there. Maybe it goes back to the parasyndrome thing in a way, but you would turn to them and say, well, what's the weather in Japan like? And they'd say. We have four seasons. Right. Or five. <laughs> no, we have two seasons in Japan. Hot and cold. We have summer and the other one. The summer and the other one, right? Yeah. And for those of you who've never had spent a summer in Japan, oh, you're really missing something. <laughs> um, but the idea of the size thing and uh, that, you know, America is so different. East coast, west coast, north, south, midwest, uh, rural, urban. And as, I think a really good point you made, Tony, is that even rural areas can significantly differ from each other. Yep. And that's something I think that's difficult because if you were to say to someone the term Inaka for the countryside, which is mm. basically a, a rural area, there tends to be a certain degree of uniformity there, I think, in Japan. Seems like. Yeah, seems. And I just might not be aware of it yeah, or me sensitive too. enough nope. to it mm. or have spent enough time there. But, you know, there is a difference between the rural areas in the Northeast. And the Midwest. Oh, and hell the yeah. West Coast. So, okay. All right. I'll grant you that. I could see how. So, making that wrong choice, choice can, can really set you up for a hard, hard time, right? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Okay. And there's the, just the, the general, what, old term homesickness. That's maybe inevitable stages and degree, but uh, it's so much. Damn, damn kids these days, you got it so easy. Um, there you go again. <laughs> but um, yeah, today we've got Skype when it works. Haha. Uh, FaceTime, uh, access to news, entertainment from your home country. Uh, it's maybe less of an issue, um, but might not feel like that to a young kid but um i mean we, we both know it was like here pre-internet days 30 years ago um you'd go like on monday tuesday or wednesday to downtown osaka to get the sunday newspaper the new york times or for, for me i'm in big city you know, la times for you maybe and the chicago tribune for me um and that was you know you'd take it like this holy icon and take it back home and you devour the Sunday newspaper. Um, and, uh, I remember when, uh, the internet, internet started to become a thing here and it was me 92, 93, bought myself a used power book, got a thing from the United States, a 28 K modem and, uh, had to hack into and hardwire from a just like a hard line phone i had like like a regular rc jack uh for the telephone so i could hook up the modem so wired the modem to the the house's wiring system and i believe it was aol uh as a service because there weren't that that many it was gol wasn't it well gol was my first isp here i had gol yeah global online but uh, what I used initially was America Online, and I had that that old power book, and it was a it was a black and white screen though it was like grayscale. It was very nice, very I classic. I remember it. For its I, time. I had one. Yeah. I think a power book one seventy or once. I had a one eighty. Okay, something like that. Right. Yeah. But so they, I bought a used one eighty. Oh, sorry about hitting the microphone there. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I bought a used one eighty, 
and I had that um, goofy little modem hooked up. And I remember the first time, and we went to news and saying, I, it, you know, again, this is a long time ago. And what you got, it was actually like a visual facsimile of that day's Chicago Tribune. And I was sitting in the living room in Japan and it's other for the first time. And it was like chills and almost tears. It's just like, this is magic. This is just amazing. Um, this is back when you'd have to like run to the, I had to run to the green phone to call home with a telephone card and, you know, talk at like six times speed because the card would just go chick, 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 chick. and then there was like another thousand yen. It was like three, it was like 300 yen a minute, three bucks a minute. You remember back when it cost 60,000 yen to get your phone line? Sure. Yeah. And you know, there's no way to get that money back. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the Wonder NTT is one of the Damn. richest companies in the world. Yeah. So it's got, that's gotten a whole lot easier, right? I mean, everything like, uh, you know, you've got your phone, so you've, and you've got GPS, wherever you go, you've got translators and wherever you are, like again, FaceTime, Skype from your phone in Denver, Stockholm, <laughs> wherever you are, <laughs> you just like, mama, <laughs> I need to talk to you. It's like, oh yes, Hiroshi, we love you. Yeah. Um, it's just like, it's in your hand all the time. So that's a, that's a big difference. Right. And again, news. Yeah. You, you, you can just latch back into NHK, see the live news and, and everything else. So that's a big part of, but it's not the same. And so and I think you still need to account for that homesickness aspect. It's an interesting thing because I don't think I've ever felt homesickness in my life. And I don't know if that's saying something about me in a good way or a bad way, or saying something about how I relate to my environment. So it's always hard for me hmm. to have empathy for that because I just don't have an idea of why or how you would feel that way. But I do know people go through it. And I don't know if I've ever talked to anybody about how technology affects their feelings of homesickness. But I do know that a friend of mine said that having Skype really made a difference when their daughter went to college on the East Coast and they're from the West Coast. And that that really made things a lot easier, being able to you know, be in touch with the, the kid via Skype or any other kind of technology. Similar to that, you've got email and now there's texting. I mean, it's immediate. Right. So it'll be interesting. I'm wondering if anyone's had done any research on whether or not there's a decline or decrease or some kind of that homesickness actually has changed in how people respond to it. Okay. So yeah, I think I think a real a real big factor with homesickness is is not only the the culture that you're visiting and how adaptable of an individual you are, but also the nature of your life back home. Um, I can. Looking at the expat community here in Japan, proportionally, there are so many people who don't have homesickness because their home life was not optimal. <laughs> to, to, who are you to talking about, it, Tony? <laughs> to put it delicately, well, I might be talking about you, but I'm talking about a lot of people here. A lot of people here are, are running away, and yeah, they don't feel homesickness because they don't. They didn't have a nice home. Um, well, I'm talking. And if you have like a, a very comfortable, a very com comfortable and supportive home environment, you're going to miss that when you land and find yourself alone in another country. Well, I think I started traveling when I was 15 and a half. Right, I was in the Middle East by myself. Well, my parents were pretty cool to let me go, and I'm hitchhiking around. And oh, there you go. Right, so, so yeah, I've been a traveler. I'm basically would define myself as being a traveler. Mm. And necessarily, in fact, it's when I'm not traveling that I feel something's wrong. Mm. So I, I mm. probably have the opposite. But I think especially in Japan where students are living at a lot of students live at home while they're still going to college, that that has a doubly strong impact on when sure. they leave. Because not only are they living in a foreign country, they're living without their parents, and many of them for the first time in a foreign environment with a lot of different expectations um, going both ways, expectations of how they're supposed to act as well as what they expect. And if you don't have any experience 
living with other people, for example, or living alone, and then you go ahead and do that out in a foreign country, I can see that that could be really difficult. I never hmm. really thought about it, that most of the students I know who have gone overseas actually were living at home, living with their parents. Yeah, and, and, and for most of them, just totally used to this overprotective environment where, you know, this, there's this in, incredible safety net that there's never any concern, never any worry. And then to, you know, get off the plane in a foreign country, it, it's suddenly very, very different. And there's another thing also, which is that in Japan, there isn't this roommate culture that we yeah. have in the United States. So, for example, when you go to college, you have your dorm roommate, and then there's the shared house. Um, I remember there were five people living in a house when we were going to school in San Francisco. And you get a lot of practice interacting with people and getting contact with different friends and new people. And then um, a lot of it, people will go to a foreign country and will get into a shared house situation. And they have no experience of what it means to live mm -hmm. in a shared house, shared so responsibility. It's a double whammy. Yeah. I think in some ways it's actually, it's a triple whammy, right? Because mm. you've got, you're living in a foreign country, you're living away from your parents, and now you're living in a shared house. And, you know, mm. that's a lot of negotiating. Mm. There's a lot of compromising. and. That it takes a lot to be able to find your way around um, a house and know, oh, this isn't right or this is normal. I mean, I can go in. I would have been able to, after my first year or second year, have enough experience in shared houses to know, ah, oh, this is a weird situation or there's something dynamics not good here. I need to get out. But if you don't yeah. have that experience, you don't know if it's you or you don't know if it's the other people. And that doubt can be very, very disconcerting. Okay, so we've got the housing compared to the housing back home, living situation. Other things you want to bring up, Tony? Um, kind of moving toward winding up, but not quite. It's just moving on to the general thing about culture shock and the different kinds of culture shock. Okay. 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 So and there's, that, there's the initial superficial one, which you talk about already a little bit parasyndrome, right? Um, yeah, you, you, you land in a foreign country and like, you just you know it's like, oh, this is weird. This is weird. This is weird. Whatever it is. Oh, people are so tall. People are talking so fast. Oh, there's, you know, their cars are on the other side of the street and the, the people do this and, and they don't do that. And everything is Wow, 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 this is different. So it's like what you experience on a vacation. You go someplace and it's like, and it's some of it's positive, some of it's negative, but it's like you're just kind of this overwhelmed by the, the differences, right? All the streets and all the signs are in a foreign language. People are talking on the streets, you don't understand what they're saying. Um, and then there's a stay there long enough, there's an adjustment period. And some of it's obvious, some of it's not conscious is stress and energy drain uh you know some of it's going on some of it's like operating on a subconscious level is just like making you tired um all the different changes and things and then you know you go up and down up and down up and down i love this place i hate this place i love these people i hate these people and eventually those cycles kind of flatten out. And it, at a certain point, six months, maybe nine months, a year, you stop thinking about, you get up in the morning. It's not like, well, I'm not living in Canada. I'm not living in Australia. I'm not living in the United States. I'm just living. You make that some, and it's, it's a, not, maybe not a one day thing, but it's a, maybe it's a transition, but more and more, you just stop thinking about being in a foreign country, you're just kind of aware of just being, and you kind of have adjusted. Um, then there's another kind, which is a little more insidious, and it's, it's long-term. It's like after you've, you've reached that point, and you kind of understand mentally that, okay, this is how they are here. So, yeah, in, coming to Japan, yeah, you... You know, we have, you are an American, I'm an American. We have ideas about personal space, strangers and people that we know. 
friends, people we know well, we feel comfortable getting closer to them. Strangers, we don't touch. Um, I have not gotten over that, and I still have extreme stress on crowded rush hour trains with people shoving and pushing, uh, physical contact with strangers. That's not what you do. That's a prelude to a knife or a gun in my, where I come from. Um, and I know that I'm in Japan, and I don't have not hit anybody. Um, but I am aware that that adds to my stress and, you know, it it could be all different kinds of things. So for example, you're in South America and friends always, you know, hug and kiss when they meet each other. If you're Japanese, you might not ever really get used to it. You understand mentally that this is where I am. This is what we do. And you hug and you kiss your friends. It adds to your stress each time that it happens. Um, and conversation patterns, you know, pauses, silences in conversation, all kinds of little things that you're just not used to as, you know, growing up as an individual. It's not part of your own culture. You understand this is how we do it in this culture, but you're never able to make the move over to the other side and do it comfortably. It always is a stressor. Um, And if there's enough of those things and coupled with like just life stresses, <clears throat> it can it can cause problems and you you see that with you see that here in Japan people who are here we've seen it just way longer than you should be it's like hey it's time to go home <laughs> um you're not doing anybody any favors you're hurting yourself you're hurting everybody around you just you know if you can't somehow reconcile all that stuff and find a way to deal with it then you need to maybe go home. Yeah. Well, I think you're talking about the acculturation cycle. Sure. And one of the things that needs to be pointed out is that it never ends. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's this wheel that just about it's a perpetual that? machine. It's a perpetual machine. <laughs> what about machine. that, Charles? <laughs> I don't know. You don't know about that? I'm joking. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every day. No, yeah, I'm, yeah, I've been I'm here 30 hoping, years. It's I'm, every day's an adjustment. I'm hoping to find someone who uh doesn't have that but i've gotten to a point where i'll turn to my, uh, my wife and i'll say okay i'm in the strong reaction phase right now i'll be negative for about the next week and i know enough that it goes through a week where you know suddenly everything is gone from being wonderfully glorious and fantastic mm-hmm. to i can't stand anything to mm-hmm. kind of an adjustment period and then almost like a, a numb kind of period where it's just like it's just okay this is life and I think I cycle probably about every 22 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, it takes about six to nine months to go through a cycle, but it's good that I know how to identify it. But if students are not aware of that, if we mm-hmm. don't prep people mm-hmm. to say, look, you're going to have yep. the, yep. Yep. where you're in love with everything. And, you know, for example, while well, riding a bus is exciting. Right. Whoa, wow, the dog speaks German. I remember when I was in Germany. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That was the weirdest thing to me. I remember when I was hitchhiking through Europe and I was in Germany and somebody told their dog to sit down or something. Like, that's, you know, and it's like, oh, these dogs are smart. And, uh, <laughs> but here's the thing. And it's something I have to remind myself to some degree, but I really try to always make sure my students who are going overseas understand this is that you can't predict what's going to surprise you. You can't predict what's going to shock you, what you're going to find amazing because it's different for each person. Right. You know, that what I just was like, whoa, you got to... And that's what makes it special. Right, but what I was going to say, I'm trying to... We're talking about the negative part of traveling or doing study overseas is I know that when those things have really been like very powerful experiences for me and nobody else seems to relate to it, or relate to it to the same degree that I have, it's kind of an isolating feeling. So I can see how that, you know, if you go overseas and something you found was really fantastic and amazing, and then you come back and nobody seems to share your wonder at that, it can, that was a little difficult for me. I think when I, even today, when I'll talk about certain things that, that when I've traveled that just amazed me. And nobody else seemed to, who I met, really had that much of a connection to the experience 
That was always exactly. Yeah, that's a biggie, you know. And thank you for setting that up man. for me because so, yeah, the next thing I want to talk and about this is unscripted. Is... Everybody, <laughs> <laughs> we're just that good. We are so good. <laughs> Which brings us to the biggie, right? For me, uh, one of my one of my pet my pet things is uh, reverse culture shock. When you go back home, you're back to your home country. Um. There's so much going on, and nobody prepares kids for this. Oh, I do. Well, I do. But, yeah. And uh, it's it's big, and it's huge. Um, and I know, because my own personal experience, I had a, a very, very hard time uh, going back home to Chicago after one year in Japan. Um, but uh, small things, um, personal space and touching, you know, you live in a long time in a foreign country. You adapt. You get used to it. You come back to your home country. You've gotten used to the other way, and you come back in, and, and you don't know which set of rules to follow, or you follow the wrong set of rules by mistakes, and suddenly people are looking at you like you're weird. Um, mm. Communication patterns, silence. Again, you know, waiting for the, like, example, in J Japanese and English. Um, speaking during meals, um, interrupting, expressing your opinion, disagreeing directly or indirectly. Um, all those things that you need to do, learn how to do in an English-speaking country. Then you come back to Japan, and all of those things are suddenly wrong. Um, for us, for example, coming to Japan, um, visibility and people's reactions. Probably not as big, depending on where, where students go. Most of the English-speaking countries are a little bit more of melting pot situations where they don't stick out visibly the way that you and I do here in Japan. But, um, you know, if you live in Japan, you get used to being visible. When you walk into a train car, everyone on the train knows a foreigner has just entered the train. You walk into a restaurant, not only do the, you get the usual welcome because a customer has walked in but everybody knows that a foreigner's walked in and conversation stops and all eyes go to the door it's like Rrr. do you really think that's true nowadays yes really i i yes. can't remember the last time all conversation stopped at a restaurant what restaurant did you walk in to i can't and who remember did you, all of them what were you wearing <laughs> i just i remember that when i first came here 30 years ago you just you just gotten used to it but my my point is, when you, when you go back home, you will be invisible. Except in you one way. You walk into a restaurant, nobody notices. Yeah, but there is... The waitress doesn't notice, the customers don't notice, you're invisible. Yeah, except for mm. I realize that people can understand my conversations. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, good, good if you can remember that. I often forget. Oh, it, no, it's it, like, oh, damn, everybody here speaks English. <laughs> I... I I go back and I'm having a conversation and I realize, wait a second, it's not private. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the other side of that is that because I have to very much, you know, spend a lot of mental energy to understand a conversation in Japanese, I really have to focus and concentrate. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I'm bombarded by conversation. <laughs> Cacophony. Yeah, yes. Yeah. It's like all these things, no, all, all no, these words. No. It's like, shut up, shut up. Shut up. Let, me, let me go back to Japan <laughs> where I can eat in peace. Just, just like tune it all out. Oh, it's <laughs> funny that way. Yeah. I wonder if our mm. students feel that way. I'm sure they do. Yeah, reverse culture shock is a strange beast. It's a bear. It's a strange beast. It's a bear. Because yeah. like, because... It's, it's, it's all these things happen at the same time. So there's there's the actual timeline. So just things change. And so you're in one place and things are changing in a certain place. Back home, things are changing in another way. Where you are in the foreign country, you are your experiences are just like cranked way up. And there's new experiences and you're growing at this phenomenal rate. You're changing as a person. You're not losing who you used to be, but you are changing so much and you're growing and all these challenges forcing you to be, become newer, stronger, more adaptable, all this stuff. And you're becoming basically a superhero. Back home, there's this void where you used to be and nothing is happening. And that void starts to get filled 
you know, whether it's your family with your friends, they, they, they have to get filled with someone else. So your best friend now goes shopping with somebody else. And when it, they have, there's a group that used to get together, go to a movie or go to dinner, it's like, well, they're used to not calling you now. And all that happens gradually, slowly over time. And then the post office gets knocked down and gets replaced with a burger, with a McDonald's or something. Um, the neighbors across the street, the, the old guy dies. They knock down his house. They build a new house. Your dog dies. Um, your parents decide to redecorate the house. Well, you're gone, but you come back home and it's like the twilight zone. It's Japan, but everybody's speaking Japanese, which sounds weird again. Um, you go back to the neighborhood, and it's like it's your street, but it's different. That house is, doesn't belong there. This doesn't fit. Um, you're, and at the same time, having lived in a foreign country, you're coming back, and you're behaving very differently. You're assertive. <laughs> you're confident. You're, you're arguing with people, and people don't know what to make of you. And so you're like trying to fit in to your old spot, and your old spot's not there. And that can be really disconcerting because all this time that you've been in this foreign country, you've maintained this image like, I'm going to go home, I'm going to go home, and go home. And that image you get as home is that home one year ago or two years ago. And that doesn't exist anymore. So it's another and version you come of back, Paris syndrome. Yeah, yeah, it's reverse Paris reverse syndrome. Reverse Paris syndrome. Your it's, like a science, it's like a science fiction movie that you've just walked into, and it's like, and it and this has been what you've been holding your head is home. This was your anchor. This is home. Okay, I got this. I'm holding on to this thing. And you go back, and it's like falls apart. It's sand in your hand, and it can be traumatic. Speaking from experience, well, I think yeah. The we're gonna have to wind this up pretty soon. And I'm done. Okay, a couple of things is one it might be interesting for us to explore our own experiences with reverse culture shock. Mm-hmm. You know, what's happened after since we were both you know been here for a while, but I'm also I could talk for hours about that. Yeah, but the other thing I'm thinking about, and it goes back a little bit to something that we said earlier, is that there's not a lot of extensive travel. Um, people tend to go for one week, two week trips in Japan. So for some mm-hmm. right, so going to a year away from home. Mm-hmm. It's so different. different. I mean, you know, different. I remember. So let me see. Time. I'm 15 and a half. I spend 10 weeks away from home. I then um, start hitchhiking around the United States. I'm on the road for two or three years. You know, coming back and forth. You know, into LA, but you know, never staying. I've I take a couple of six month trips to Europe. You know, so I had a lot of experience when I first came to Japan for one year, which it still was hard. Um, but, you know, especially in 1988, and being in a small town. But, right, our students are not experienced with long-term traveling. They've only been tourists. They've never really been travelers. And this is their first experience being a long way from home, on a long-term trip, and being immersed in a different culture, and then suddenly coming back. And if you don't have the experience, it could be pretty weird, I imagine. But I think that, you know, I agree with you, Tony, that these things occur that they're and I'm much more convinced now about the negatives than I was at the beginning at the podcast. So I think that if teachers can help students be aware of these things, be more self-aware and understand and go through and, hey, what are your expectations? How can you measure your expectations? How can you, uh, you know, really prepare for what you're getting into? Is um helpful and would be a good idea. I think, and I don't know how many programs actually do that, or they just not enough. Yeah. Okay, not always. Enough. It's I, always I, I did. I did a study back in 1995, 1996. Compared like um, several study abroad programs, specifically what they did to prepare them to go overseas, and also what they how they prepared them for reentry. Okay, but maybe I'll reference that. Um, I don't know how. Good it is again. It was like twenty five years ago. Yeah. I also referenced like the intercultural textbook that I did, which has like a there were all the chapters are very short, but a very short uh, chapter on culture shock. Mm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing. Okay, anything you want to add before we close down number one hundred and nine? No, I, I I think that's it. Um, 
No, I think I'm done. Okay, well done. <laughs> well done, Tony. All right. So I think maybe we someday we'll revisit this a little bit, both Paris syndrome and maybe reverse culture shock. Yeah, I'm going to go off the deep end, I think, on this Paris um, syndrome. I'd never heard of it, and it's just... It's worth exploring because because it, it's interesting, right? Because it is so. Does it seem to be very Jap- Japan specific? Well, I want to find that out, and okay. I think it's one well, of the some homework it's for an both interesting of us, huh? thing for students. I think it's going to make for some real interesting reading articles for mm-hmm. my students this uh, semester. So I'm going to look at that. Okay, so I am Charles Wiz, Tony Silva, the two teachers talking, and we can be found on the internet in a variety of forms formats or um, <laughs> domains or whatever and skype and gmail and uh, two teachers talking.com that'll get you there okay tony you be well and uh, good luck on uh, all the hey new year the ahead new year. <laughs> can't wait that's right okay you be well uh but i'm looking forward to the kids yeah yeah that's all always right. fun okay all see right. you bye <laughs>